Welcome to Other You, a podcast where we discuss a decision in our lives that may or may not have had a long-lasting impact. We unpack some of the factors behind it and then explore in short story form what the other version of ourselves might have experienced around that time or shortly thereafter. I'm your host, Dee. Let's see where this story takes us. Welcome back to another episode of Other You. I am your host, Dee. Today on the show, I have with me a retired civil engineer in her old age of are you even 30 i'm 32 she's 32 okay in her old age of 32 retired civil engineer i know her through improv very very talented uh quick-witted very very smart please welcome to the show vanessa rollins hello hey d how's it going good to see you great good to see you too fantastic i'm doing very very well thank you very much the sun is shining after a very bitter cold winter um and i'm i'm just glad that it's warming up so i can turn off my heat i think you've had a good winter for being able to avoid the heat aside from february this has been a really warm winter and i think just being we're getting close to about a year in quarantine and isolation and just this heat and just everybody's looking for an excuse to get outside and to just not get absorbed into the negativity i think it's a wonderful day Mm -hmm. yeah today i think today's gonna be a good day today is definitely gonna be a good day so I'm I'm excited I'm excited for that, um, but yeah it's it's these I think what's interesting to me is so we're recording this um, first week of March, uh, within the first ten days and I think what I'm noticing is there's this buzz right this buzz of um, the vaccines are rolling out what does that mean does that mean we're gonna go back to normal soon. What does normal look like? A lot of our favorite places are closed and they closed permanently because of because of the the pandemic, you know, but I want to get out. So what do we do? Are we going to jam pack in the few places that are left? Or, you know, are we going to space things out? What's going to happen? So I I find that to be interesting. There's this buzz. But uh, last last week or two weeks ago, it was um, clear and we had we ran an errand together and there were a lot of people out a lot like more than i had seen in in quite some time so it's going to be interesting going forward and i think it's going to be really interesting um just because of where we're at chicago has really taken COVID, i think fairly fairly seriously compared to most other cities and states around the u.s Mm -hmm. and so i I think it's going to be an interesting experience for people who have taken it seriously to just come out of their shell and be um, just be social really for the first time in a year, mm-hmm. whereas so many other places just never stop being social. And right. so their experience coming out is going to look completely different. And, yeah. I, and I think it's going to be really interesting just to see how that works out. Are we just going to come out of the gate swinging like Chicagoans? Or are we just going to take our time and see how it goes? Yeah. Yeah. You know, dip our toes in over and over again or yeah. yeah so like I have family in Florida. And so comparing the dynamic of what's going on in Florida to what's going on here and what has been is, has been very interesting. So looking forward to seeing how things you know turn out yeah i oh. I, I i drive uh for lyft um in my spare time here and off and on and whenever i get passengers from florida they're always a they're always in love with the city because it's so easy to fall in love with the city of chicago mm-hmm. and they're always so aghast at where is everybody where's how come nobody's out why is everything closed there uh, so many people like i guess this is great like good for everyone for staying inside and doing the right thing but where is everybody mm-hmm. yeah it's 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 the whole you got to live your life get out there get out there 
I don't know. I'm, <laughs> I'm okay waiting as long as I have to, to feel, you know, better. I, although, I, to be honest, I, after talking with, with my, my wife, Stephanie, I'm like, what, when things, even when the vaccines have gone out, everybody that, you know, has one, has one. Um, and things are back open. Are you still going to wear a mask? I might. Are you talking like long in the future or just over the next couple of months as things open up? I don't like, I mean, like for the next year, I still might keep a mask on just to keep it, you know, I don't know if it's, it's, if it's going to be my adult binky that I just need mm-hmm. to keep with me for a little while or what, but I think for a little while I'm going to, I'm going to keep the mask. I like the idea. I mean, I haven't been as sick this year as I normally have just with like colds or whatever. Sure. So on that hand, I, I, I think so much of it's going to come down to social pressure. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I go out and I see everybody else wearing a mask, I'm going to end up just keeping mine on because I don't want to stick out. But if I sure. go out to a bar and nobody has it on, then I'm not going to wear a mask mm-hmm. because why would I be the one person? Right. And, and so I, even when I walk down the street, when I over the summer, this past summer, when masks started rolling out, I would find myself walking down the street and the, the guidance was if there's no one within six feet, you don't need to wear a mask. Right. And so I would take my mask off, but I would see people so far away just always having their mask on. And I, mm-hmm. I felt bad. I felt like I was doing something wrong, even though I'm following the spirit of the law. And then since then, just because of how I saw how everybody else was acting, mm-hmm. I just decided to start wearing a mask. And so I wonder if it'll just stick around just because that's what people are used to, whether we need mm-hmm. to or not. Right. There's the pressure to keep it on. Just It's just there inherently. That could be. All right. But that being said, let us segue into Vanessa's decision. Hit me with your decision, Vanessa. Let's hear it. Well, I've had, I, I ran through so many different ideas, so many different phases of my life that I think could have provided some real interesting um, decisions. And I think one that I want to explore is uh, from 2014, I made the decision to move to Chicago. Okay. And I think it would be interesting to see what my life would look like had I never made that decision, had I just chosen to stay living in Phoenix, where I was born and raised. Mm-hmm. Stay in Phoenix. Okay. All right. So you moved in 2014 or you decided to move in 2014? Both, as a matter of fact. Okay. So... Near the beginning, uh, near the middle of spring in 2014, uh, I was getting, I was doing my uh, annual review at work. And one of the questions was, where do you see yourself in five years? Mm-hmm. And I, half jokingly, I said, not here. <laughs> and my boss responded, well, what do you, what do you mean? Are, are you looking to change jobs? And I said, no, it's not the job. Um, though it did turn out to be the job. Uh, it's not the job. I just... I've lived my whole life in Phoenix and I want to do something different. I want to, I want to try something different. Um, And so he had, we we had, you know, being an international consulting firm, we had locations all over the country and the Phoenix office had a really close um, relationship with the Chicago office. And there was an opening uh, in Chicago for someone of my experience level. And so, you know, they floated the idea, well, what about Chicago? Would you move there? Uh, and I had never been to Chicago. I didn't know anybody in Chicago. Um, I'd probably seen it um, in passing or just on TV. I mean, I did grow up watching Family Matters and Married with Children, so I was vaguely aware nice. of Buckingham Fountain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it sounded like a fun adventure. Uh, and so 
I went on, I went out for an interview here in Chicago. They flew, I flew out here and everything went well. And so uh, a few weeks later, I made the decision to just go, go for it. Oh, wow. So the interview went well enough for them to say, Hey, we would love to have you here. Yeah. The, the people here in Chicago that I met, um, they, they seemed happy to have me. I, I fit exactly what they needed. And it seemed that I fit in the timeline of when they wanted someone to move out. And so that was, uh, earlier in the spring, I want to say in April, um, April, was when I flew out here to Chicago for the interview. And it was Labor Day, uh, or rather just a few days before Labor Day, when I packed up all my stuff and started the drive out east here. Wow. That's a long drive. It, that is uh, a long 20, drive. 28 hours, oh. um, if you do it nonstop. Uh, wow. The first time I did it, uh, we broke it up into three separate days, and that was very doable. The second okay. time I did it, um, it was it was nonstop, and that was doable in its own weird way. Wow. That's interesting. Okay. Like when I was, I went to, to college in Dallas and I drove from Dallas to Chicago and back several times during that time there. And I hated it every time. I mean, you get so used to all of the markers that you're like, okay, I know it's only eight more hours till this thing. Oh, here we are. It's only four more hours to this other thing, you know, but the mm-hmm. idea of 28 hours multiple times. Dang. <laughs> I every time I did it, I said this would be the last time I did it. The first right? time I did it, never, never driving across the country again. And then, of course, it was December of that year when I drove across the country again. Yeah. And then two years later, I did it again. Gosh, but Dallas to Chicago—that's probably what eighteen hours. Yeah, it's like eighteen, uh, nineteen. Yeah, that's that's two days for sure, right? Well, I mean, so we would we would always do it where it's like uh, we have class tomorrow. Let's leave you know, early in the, or like we have class on Monday. So let's leave really early on Sunday. Okay, let's Whoa. go. So we would leave early on Sunday and drive all day. And I think my favorite, my favorite trip back, we legit hit a wormhole. It took us. So we left my house in Chicago at 11 AM. We stopped in Champaign, visited with my brother who was there at the time for like two hours. And we made it back to campus at 11.53 p.m. Wow. Yeah. That's like a seven-hour wormhole that we didn't, that we somehow passed through. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> uh, like, we were freaking out because, uh, like, you had to be, our school is very strict, so you had to be, like, on your floor in your room by 11, right? Um, on Fridays and Saturdays, you could uh, bump that to midnight. What? Uh, but we got permission. Like I sent a, a, an email saying, "Hey, look, I, I'm I'm driving back. We're probably going to be later." And they're like, "Okay, you can you have until midnight." So we're like, oh, "Okay, cool." That I mean, we we absolutely should have been late, you know? Because yeah, it was it was there was like a, a two hour. It was a twelve hour trip from start to finish. Well, almost thirteen, but we also broke for two hours. Right. So sounds like you might have violated a traffic law or two on the way. I can't say for I, sure. I wish that was the case. I wish that was the case. We were driving this beater that I, f- I feel like had a speed gate on it because we, we were like, it was like 72 is what we drove. Because like, you know, those old cars, when you hit a certain speed, it starts to like rumble until you get to like 90 or 95. Right. So it was, I don't know. It was, that's one of my favorite memories because it makes no sense and I hate it. Um, my... My first car was a 1980 Ford Thunderbird, one of those, you know, old school V8s that had maybe 170 horsepower with all eight cylinders. And that thing just rumbled and creaked. But once it hit cruising speed on the freeway, once it hit like 
55, 60, it just, everything just kind of gelled together and it just settled in and it just purred. Ah. Yeah, that makes sense. If you're if you're if your gearing is set towards you know maximizing your torque efficiency at a certain speed, which you would expect in say like an older four speed like that four speed automatic with a torque converter, yeah, you're just going to be looking to maximize cruising speeds at each of those at each of those gears. Nowadays, we have you know CVTs, continuously variable transmissions that can get good mileage throughout the range, uh, planetary gear transmissions, all sorts of you know fancy new ideas on how to like maximize. Uh, gearing and miles per gallon and torque efficiency and all that not so maybe much back then <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you had like a couple options back then for efficiency oh yeah i love it yeah you, you had your you had your mush box and you had your manual and your efficiency came on how good you were with the clutch yep oh man when did you first learn to drive clutch so uh i learned to drive clutch on a motorcycle before i learned how to drive clutch in a regular car i okay. learned motorcycle god i had to ride a motorcycle probably about 2009 2010 is when i first had experience with a manual uh with a car it was a 2000 is in 2011 um i bought my first car ever brand new it was a volkswagen jetta tdi nice. um it was one of the diesel ones it was a six was it a five speed or a six speed i believe it was a six speed uh six speed manual and that car was just such a pleasure to drive it was you know the german engineering whole bit is kind of true that thing was just great at high speeds i would take that thing carving in the canyons of arizona or going up to jerome and through prescott uh, and it was just an absolute great car to drive and having so much low end torque being a diesel, mm -hmm. um, just getting off the line in first and second gear was just so much fun. There was, it was such a strong rush from that, from that diesel engine, just at those low RPMs. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was so great to have, um, a manual in that car. Uh, the few times I'd had to take it in and I got a, an automatic, um, for a rental, it just wasn't. It just didn't have that same, I don't know, joy de vivre about it. It just you weren't in in you weren't so connected with the vehicle as you mm -hmm. are in a manual and just yeah. Uh. Yeah, I think it's it's interesting talking with um, Europeans versus Americans when you talk about cars. Like most Europeans drive manuals, right? Um, and here, most Americans have never driven manual, which is always like really fun to like get that interesting dynamic back and forth um i think it's interesting there's something fun about the idea of sitting in a car that looks more that has enough gears and levers to look almost more like a john deere tractor right um <laughs> like whenever i sit in a jeep wrangler that has you know a full manual and then it has its transfer case right. uh lever down there like i just feel like i'm in charge look at all of these knobs i love it yeah i'm with you i'm yeah, with you all these knobs that like eight people in this country can actually use. Right. <laughs> oh man. All right, so let's um let's unpack a little bit more of who you were at the time. So yeah. this was in 2014. Uh, tell me a little bit about your family life then. So, uh, at that point, um 
I was living at home with my uncle, uh, my dad's brother. Okay. Um, we had two cats that we had rescued. Um, they just kind of showed up on our doorstep back in 2008. Um, I had a, my best friend was living with me at the time and we were, we were out in our backyard, out in the backyard, hanging up clothes, probably at like eight or nine at night. Um, and we just heard these quiet little meows. Um, and there were these little two cats that were maybe like six inches long, just sitting in the, sitting in the grass, just meowing. Um, and of course we fed them and over, over time, eventually they worked their way into the house and just became pets of the family. Mm. Um, and so uh, at the time I was living with my uncle, um, my mom uh, was living in Sun City, which is a suburb of Phoenix, uh, okay. a retirement community, actually, um, one of the original Del Webb retirement communities. And so she was about a half hour drive away from my house. And I would, I would go visit her on the weekends. Um, and it was uh, maybe not every weekend. On some mm -hmm. weekends, I would go out and visit sure. her. Um, it should, it's, it's one of those situations where... Your family is close enough that you can visit, but you don't feel obligated to visit often. Mm, yeah. Close enough, but not too far away. Okay. And then uh, did you have any siblings? Uh, I have an older brother, and I'm pretty sure he had already moved to Washington, D.C. at this time. Okay. Um, he'd been living in D.C. for a while, but he... I'm pretty sure he'd been living in... He's living in D.C. at this point. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, so you're living with your uncle at the time. Uh, did he have any kids? Did you have any cousins? That were in the um, house with you at the same time? No, it was just me and him. He never, he never married, never had kids, just lifelong bachelor gotcha. um, with all of the pros and cons that come along with living with a lifelong bachelor in his 70s. Mm -hmm. Okay. 70s. That's right. Your, your, your parents had you uh, pretty late in life, right? Yeah. Uh, everybody in my family is old compared to me. Uh, my dad had me when he was 60. Um, which would have made my uncle 58 at the time. My mom was in her early 40s when she had me. So everybody was up there in age. Even my older brother is nine years older than me. So mm -hmm. there was really nobody within my age range. We didn't, uh, there was no cousins around. Maybe the closest were in LA and we'd only driven out to LA a few times. Um, and so I really didn't have much of a family um, in Phoenix with me gotcha. besides just okay. like my nuclear family. Do you think that was, um, something that helped make it easy to leave Phoenix because there wasn't like, you didn't have a, like a really big family draw there. There was your mom in the retirement community and your uncle. Um, and then your brother's already gone. Do you think that helped make it easier for you to leave? Um, I think in, in some way, uh, it's actually interesting that having family in Phoenix is part of what made me decide to leave. Mm. Um, is that, uh, being older, um, I felt kind of obligated to take care of them. So whenever somebody would, especially my uncle, uh, whenever he would need to go to the doctor's office, I would have to take time off work to take him to the doctor's office. Or if he needed help going to the grocery store, I would take him to the grocery store and walk him around and help him carry things. And it was getting, it, it kind of almost got to the point where I, I was just giving up too much of myself to help everybody else um, as I so often want to do mm -hmm. and instead of being able to just personally set boundaries and say like no i can't take you to the doctor's office today we have a big project going out let me hire you an uber instead i just thought it would be easier rather than actually saying no to just say hey i'm moving two thousand miles away sorry i can't help you anymore mm, yeah okay okay um and you were at this time working um 
as a civil engineer, right? Yes, that's has correct. It, has it all? Has that always been your field, civil engineering, or have you done mechanical or any other type of like chemical engineering or anything like that? Uh, so when I was in college, my first year and a half, I was a bio major. I wanted to be an anesthesiologist, but then I discovered uh, that medical school and grad school and all that was going to take a long time. And I figured I've already been in school here for, I don't know, 13, 14 years. I'm not doing another 10. Uh, <laughs> and so my roommate was in engineering uh, and I'd always had a proclivity for math and science. And I realized that he was going to be out with his bachelor's in four years and working and making decent money. And so I just fell into that, uh, into engineering. And I started uh, in industrial engineering, things mm -hmm. like um, uh, ergonomics design, um, the when you're in a factory building things, the layout of all the machines and all the conveyor belts and everything, there's a whole term for it that's escaping mm -hmm. me. Uh, but that lasted for all of two weeks before I switched over to civil engineering because I figured I could just copy off his homework <laughs> um, and that would just make my schooling easier. Okay. Um, and so once I, I graduated my degree in civil engineering and as a professional, yeah, essentially all of my work was in the civil engineering field. Gotcha. Okay. So you're, how long had you been with this company um, uh, when you decided to leave? I think I had been with them for, oh, just uh, about, oh gosh, only maybe about a year or so. Because I, I graduated in 2011, I got my first, yeah, oh, just a little over a year or so. Okay. A little over a year. How long did you end up staying with them total, including mm, your time in Chicago? Let's see, I started with them in 2013 and I was laid off. I was actually laid off uh, the day of Trump's inauguration in 2017. Um, so as he was giving speeches about bringing all these jobs back to America, I lost my job. Uh, so uh, yes, about four years. Okay, about four years. Okay, and then um... The, the time that you spent taking care of your older family members and work, did that leave you with a lot of time for personal hobbies, anything like that? Did you did you do things that were, that were fun? Uh, I know that um, in the time that we have hung out, we've played uh, either like card or board games. Um, what kind of hobbies were you able to cultivate at that time? So um, a lot of my free time uh, revolved just hanging out uh, with my girlfriend, my ex guess now but my girlfriend at the time um she was going through nursing school so she had a lot of stuff to do on her own but when we did have time that matched up uh we like to we really just like to go out to eat we like to going going on road trips um just going out and there was certainly especially once i had made the decision to move and i extended the offer to her to move along with me and she accepted there was a certain sense of finality both of us had always lived our lives uh in arizona and so it was just kind of like tying up a lot of the loose ends of things that we'd wanted to do, but just had always just kind of like evaded us that uh, we just wouldn't be able to do once we left. So lots of road trips around the area, just day trips out to San Diego, LA, up to Vegas um, for a weekend, eating at a lot of the local restaurants that I knew I wouldn't have access to anymore. Mm. Um, lots of In-N-Out Burger. Gosh, I miss In-N-Out so much. Lots yeah. of Whataburger, lots of local joints. There's a really great um, soul food place in Phoenix that I recommend to anybody who has any kind of interest in soul food. Uh, Lolo's Chicken and Waffles. Um, and I am Lolo's? not the Lolo's. Yeah, I am not the only person that thinks it might be the best soul food in the country. I felt very uplifted when I saw Charles Barkley 
one time say it was yeah. better than Roscoe's, the famed Roscoe's. Really? And I feel like if my dietary uh, decisions line up with King Charles, I think, you know, I think I've made some good decisions here and there. <laughs> so it's, um, it's important that everybody listening know that as a, a Phoenician, um, Charles Barkley played for the Phoenix Suns. So I feel like there's a measure of weight to his, his recommendations because of that affinity. He played in the 90s for the Phoenix Suns. Um, what year did he join them? 91? Yeah, 91. Uh, yeah. And then the next year is when he took him to the finals. Right. And then they lost, unfortunately, to my Chicago Bears. Um, I, I was, I maybe was about four years old at the time, but I can still remember sitting on my mom's bed um, for game six, watching John Paxson sink that three and just, you know, watching, watching all of my hopes and dreams sink along with it. Right. Oh, I'm sorry you had to experience that from that end. Um, it's okay. yeah okay so a lot of dining out a lot of road trips so that's that's how you guys occupied your time in the the days leading up to leaving you're like okay let's do all the things that um we haven't done yet together uh before we move right yeah things we haven't done yet together and things that we do together that we just won't be able to do anymore Um, you said she, she did move up here with you a few months later, that was my second trip that December. Uh, gotcha. So she still had to finish nursing school when I left around Labor Day. So end of August, early September 2014. She still had the rest of that semester uh, to go. So that December after she graduated, I flew back to Phoenix and then drove her back. Wow. And that was our um, monumental 28-hour drive nonstop. We had two cats and there was just no point. Mm. in like trying to figure out a place for them to stay. Just gotcha. don't give them food. Don't give them water. Throw them in a cage. And just let them sit in the car for 28 hours. They'll be fine. Ah, Right. Wow. How much meowing was there? So (laughs) the, the cats had, as cats always are, they had very different personalities. Uh, The two, there were two boys, Frank and Dino. Frank um, is generally a very quiet cat, pretty much kept to himself. And in in fact, I think he enjoyed that whole trip. Um, Mm. I don't remember him acting out or meowing in any other way. Dino being um, the ham that he is, we didn't even get um, 90 minutes outside of the city uh, up into Black Canyon City before uh, he started having just terrible diarrhea everywhere oh. in the car. <laughs> um, and so we stopped oh, by this no. little rest stop and probably spent like $8 on one roll of uh, paper towels and got him cleaned up. And maybe half an hour after that, we hit this freak hailstorm in the middle of the desert. Jeez. One of the worst hailstorms I'd ever driven in. And he was terrified and kept pooping himself and started foaming at the mouth just out of anxiety. And it kept going until we got about over uh, the New Mexico border when I think he ran out of bodily fluids to expel. And then he was pretty good from then all the way from <laughs> oh my about Albuquerque to Chicago. That poor little guy. <laughs> oh, he's fine. He's, such an, he's a brat. He, he was fine. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, so I've I've driven to Ohio once, maybe twice, with my wife's cat in the car, and she freaks out <sighs> after like a few minutes because like I feel like she has timed the trip from the apartment to the vet, Ooh. and that's it, right? Mm-hmm. So now she's still in the car. She's like, "What what's happening?" You know. So like I remember she was like meowing like crazy, like going nuts. I was like, "All right, I'm gonna let you out of the cage." You know, and then I figured she would just take a nap on the seat. She'll be fine, right? No, 
she like climbed on my shoulder. She's like climbing everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. But then she finally settled down, like climbed under one of the seats. And she's like, okay, I'm fine here. And then she was fine the rest of the trip. But how brave of you to let her travel without a carrier? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. So she was in the carrier at first. And then I was like, I'm going to let you out. See, see what you do. I got you. I got you. Yeah. 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 So she was in the carrier for sure. And then she was like freaking out because like, we'll give her treats like here. Hopefully this will settle you down. She's like, no. And she like bats them back. I don't want these (laughs) delicious treats. Get these out of here. You know, because she's frustrated or whatever. But yeah, she she was fine until I got out, and I was like, right, "Can you please come out from under the chair now?" She's like, "Nope." <laughs> she like does that thing where she claws into the the mats down there. So it was fun. It was fun. Going straight, going road trips with the cats that hate it is great. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, tell me what kind of music, what kind of music were you into at the time? So this is really interesting. This was probably one of the most out there musical periods I've ever had. I've always been very like um, up and down with different types of music tastes, but this one was very unique in that the, the car that I had at the time, that Jetta I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, um, uh, it had satellite radio in it and I'd never had satellite radio before. Oh. Um, I had just been used to, oh gosh, I was still living on the whole Napster bear share torrent mm-hmm. kind of mentality of just like accumulating music wherever I can yeah. and whatever I find I listen to. But having satellite radio gave me the opportunity to just, I don't know, listen to the radio in a way that I hadn't before. So I'd probably listen to a lot more top 40 stuff around them mm-hmm. than I ever probably would have um, before or since. So lots of, Oh gosh, 2014. What was big then? Uh, I think I was, we were just coming out of like a big Macklemore phase in society. Mm, yeah. Um, there was lots and lots. I, I remember just so much can't hold us and thrift shop. Mm-hmm. Um, I had, I had always had a soft spot for Kesha and I think uh, she had just gotten a little um, controversy over, is it her die young album? A warrior where die young and crazy kids were on. Mm-hmm. Um, oh yeah. Die young just came out right, uh, right around when the Sandy hook shootings happened. And that just kind mm-hmm. of like, this old that whole album yeah uh, lot, lots of katie perry lots of calvin harris uh was it the 18 months album came out mm. roughly around maybe a year or two before then but it was so big it just had so many hits um uh, was what are those big songs like we found love mm-hmm. sweet nothing i need your love just so many good songs time it was a it was oh. a really interesting time in music taste for me i like time i like time oh time's great Nice. I, I saw I saw them open for Taylor Swift at uh, Soldier Field here uh, a few years ago. Nice. Just what an incredible concert! Oh. Yeah, nice. I love it. I love it. I also I also saw Heim at the Aragon Ballroom here. Oh gosh, back in 2017, and they had this opener I'd never heard of before. This this woman named Lizzo. Uh, she hadn't been really taken off quite yet, but who that, who's like Lizzo? Who's that? Yeah, Lizzo. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What a treat that must have been. It really was. And I didn't know it at the time. It was only in retrospect when Lizzo became like super popular. That, like I felt like that Leo, Deca- Leo memes. Ah, hey, ah, I, yeah. I, I've seen, I know her. Wow. Okay. What was, what was that? Do you remember anything about that show? Was it peculiar watching somebody play the flute? Um, I don't recall her playing the flute. Interesting. Uh, okay. I just might have been zoned out for that part or 
I think it might have been the first. It was also probably the first time I'd been to the Aragon. So I was probably admiring the interior architecture. Okay. Because it is a very picturesque place to watch a show. Yeah. Okay. Right on. Right on. I mean, I always love um, when you see somebody like, and then you're like, oh, how do I know this artist that is like blowing up, right? Or remember, like, oh, man, I remember when they opened for this. And then you can't really like picture their their opening or their act at all but then every now and again you have those people where there's like something memorable in that and then five six seven years later you see them exploding like oh man i saw them and they did this and it was like so amazing i'm not surprised at all i I love i love that you know it's like the minor leagues for me you know catching somebody in the minors you know trying to track somebody's progress or when I was a kid getting baseball cards and I would see like these rookies, you know, like, Oh, this guy, he's, he might be pretty good. And then it turns out, Oh no, this is a Derek Jeter rookie card. Oh, I've been chasing this dude for 20 years and he's the greatest. Whoa. You know, that sort of thing. So I, 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 I agree. I think there is really something about like seeing someone when they're still up and coming and young and hungry and you yeah. can just hear it in their voice and just the way they carry themselves. They're desperate for attention. Yeah. Um, but I do hesitate, just on a personal basis, I do hesitate to say, like, ah, I I, I, I liked them before they were cool. Because sure. I, I just remember growing up, the hipster uh, yeah, I, I didn't want to get branded into that. And I just got so tra- That's <laughs> almost <fair>. traumatized by <laughs> it. Like, no, 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 no. I, I only thought it was cool when it became cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm with everybody. I'm with the crowd. I'm just a normie. Leave me alone. Yeah. Well, that's great. So what was your practical projection for yourself right so uh your your boss um was it your boss or was this like hr it was just like one of those evaluations where they were asking you like hey where do you see yourself in five years it's my boss it was your okay so your boss asks you hey where do you see yourself in five years and like out of instinct you answered well not here what were you actually planning for yourself outside of that conversation what what were you looking forward to practically working toward to either acquire or to build for yourself or to do what was the the projection so i mean my aside from my my desire to move somewhere my real uh my life looked very simple to me back then i just wanted to get i i was i was following the roadmap that modern society had laid out for me go to school get a degree in stem hop on the corporate ladder make money, get power, um, rise up the ranks, and ta-da, somewhere along the lines, get married, have kids, uh, and live a normal life, and you'll be happy. And that was, you know, my, my view of the world back then. And that was kind of the life that I was I was looking out for. You know, when I when I say we would go out to eat, that to me, that would mean like, oh boy, wing night at Buffalo Wild Wings. That's how we're going to celebrate this. <laughs> we're going to go to B-Dub Dubs. What, what? Um, I know. And I had bought I bought that car uh, with the idea of keeping it forever. I figured that diesel right. engine would last for you know half a million miles. And I was in the mindset, um, aside from the move, that like I am ready to settle in to this like traditional domestic uh, cis heteronormative bliss. Um, and that was you know that was the only. Uh, option that I felt was really presented to me. And so I felt like that was just where my life had to go. I didn't 
I didn't really perceive another path for me uh, at the time. Obviously, mm-hmm. things have changed since then. Yeah, yeah. But it just seemed like this is the right, this is the only way to go. This is the thing to do. And so this is what I will do. Okay. So you were essentially like on autopilot chasing after the quote unquote American dream. Yeah. Go we, to school, uh, get that job, make that money, have some family. And then, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Me, me and my girlfriend at the time, it had been together for a few years. Uh, we talked about marriage and kids and blah, 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 blah. And everything, you know, everything was just leading down that path. Gotcha. Okay. So now outside of that, right outside of the logical pursuit of all of these things, what was like deep inside your belly? What were the hopes and dreams that you had at that time? I'm, I'm talking like this is where the fairies are. This is where the unicorns live. I'm talking like the, the tell me what the stars were for you shooting for the stars. What was that for you then? So I think for me at the time, it's so hard to look at so much. So many of these things in retrospect um, for, for a number of reasons. I think the biggest one is there's uh, there's this idea of what makes a person a person. And if I wake up, if I, if I close my eyes and reopen them, I, I, I assume that I am the same person that I was before my eyes were closed, mm-hmm. that I still have access to all the same memories. I believe that I'm in the same body as before my eyes closed. So I'm still the same person. And if I, and if I, if, if I close my eyes tonight and woke up, in a different body, but I still had access to all the same memories and I was essentially the same energetic person that I am, I feel like I'm still the same person. Mm-hmm. Even though I'm in a different body, I would want to be you know, be addressed for who I am. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to look back on thing, that part of my life because I'm not sure if I was the same person back then. Because even though I inhabit the same body and I have the same memories, because that time of my life was before I began transitioning genders, I don't, I, I look at everything in my life through a different lens. The way that everything was looks different. So I, it's hard for me to look back on it because I don't know if I was the same person. Life had a different view on it and I perceived everything differently. Mm-hmm. And so a big, the big dream of mine back then that I didn't really have the words or the understanding to really put the pieces together and to figure out how to accomplish that dream was to just feel whole inside. Just I had felt whole. so so empty that I was searching for something that uh, I wasn't, I didn't know who I was. Um, and I, I had taken to heart this idea that if I just follow the steps of uh, the American dream, then I would find myself somehow in there and I would find internal happiness. Mm-hmm. But, uh, the, the whole, I guess my whole overarching goal with doing everything that I was doing was to just find myself somehow, find myself through my work, find myself through my relationships, learn more about myself to just find why I was so deeply mm. unhappy with being alive. Yeah. Uh, the answer, obviously, the, the obvious answer came out later, but well, when I did actually, mm-hmm. um, but at the time that, that was, that was my like inner hope and dream was to just figure out what was filling this just vast sea of emptiness living in me. Okay. Yeah. It's, um, so one of my previous guests, Jace, um, on his episode, we talk about that, um, 
life before his transition. And uh, in his story, I make mention of this moment that he had where he's staring into a mirror and just very confused. Like, I feel like that's me, but I can't see myself there sort of thing. So um, did you ha- did you ever have any of those experiences where um, as you're doing all of the things you're supposed to, right, the quote unquote following all the steps that have been laid out for you, uh, doing all of those things, did you ever catch yourself even when you're talking where you're like, who is that? Who is that? And then stopping in a reflection and maybe not necessarily recognizing who you are now, but just really wanting to see yourself and not. I, 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 I think there's a, I, I, yes. And I can answer that in two different ways okay. is that like when I would look into a mirror, I would see like the rational part of my mind would understand that. Yes, I am looking at myself. This is a reflective surface. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing is who is what my body is. But I always got the impression that it wasn't right. Something was wrong about it. Like I felt as if I was an alien mm-hmm. uh, living in a sea of humans mm-hmm. The I didn't be- like, this was my body, but I didn't belong in it. And I didn't have words to really words or concepts or anything to understand what that looked like. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a, it's, it's funny you mentioned uh, looking in a the mirror. There was, um, it was after we'd moved here to Chicago, I was, uh, me and my ex had left the Chick-fil-A at state and Lake, um, right there by the L tracks. Mm-hmm. And we were waiting for the bus to go. Uh, we were waiting to catch the bus. And I remember at the bus stop, uh, they have uh, the big rolling advertisements in the bus stop. Mm-hmm. So as you're sitting there, they they roll through the advertisements. And I was standing there staring at one. And the next one rolled up. And it was a Swarovski crystal ad. And it had Miranda, featured Miranda Kerr. But the way the ad was set up is that it rolled up and her face met me approximately where my face was. And so I looked at it and I was standing straight face first into it. And everything in my body not my rational mind, but everything in my body was telling me that I'm looking into a mirror. Hmm. And in that moment, I, I felt like I was seeing myself. And, and I, and I, on the outside, I just stern and stone faced, but inside I was having this, this moment of like, what, what, what's going on? Why, why do I feel like this about uh, this, this bus stop? And why do I feel like I'm looking at myself? Hmm. And my ex comes over and she says, what are you looking at? And I and with all the sincerity in the world, I look at her and I point to the ad and I said, how did they install a mirror in this bus stop ad? Mm-hmm. With all the sincerity I could muster. And she laughs and she said, that's not a mirror. That's Miranda Kerr. And I just oh, oh yeah, <laughs> of course. I'm just I'm just kidding. Of course, that's that's exactly what's going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that just that moment just kind of ate at me. Like, what? why? How did I? Why was I thinking this? How could I? How? And it took years to figure it out, but mm-hmm. there was absolutely a case of when I would see myself, things didn't seem right. And when I would see other people, things did seem right. Okay. Interesting. All right. So tell me, did you have any quirks? And if so, what was your favorite quirk about yourself at the time? Mm, well, Gosh, there's lots of quirks about me. Uh, mm. uh, I think my most interesting quirk at the time, I I had really bought into this mindset that um, I 
I guess happiness came from efficiency. Maybe it was just all these years in engineering between school, but like I had to be the most efficient person I can. And that was, and that's how I'll have enough time and internal space to be happy. And so what I ended up doing, and I, I picked up the habit from a coworker that never left me for years was I started, I, I realized that I really just liked wearing polo shirts to work. And so I took five polo shirts that I thought looked and fit fairly well and declared them my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday shirts. And so every Monday I would wear the same polo shirt. Every Tuesday I would wear the same polo shirt. Um, and it, it saved, I, I like to think that it saved me all of this thought energy of having to decide what I had to wear for work. Mm -hmm. And so that every time I looked down at my clothes, I would know what day it is. Ah, today is Thursday. Yeah. I'm wearing my Thursday shirt. Right, right. Um, and that, and I guess that was the big, that was an interesting quirk about me is that no matter what day, whatever day of the week it was, you would find me wearing the exact same thing just the next week. Nice. Yeah. So that's, uh, one of the things that, um, my wife loves about like super highly efficient and highly powerful entrepreneurs and such is a lot of them will have a, 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 a uniform, right? Uh, either they only wear shades of black or they only wear this or they only wear that. And it's just like, I have so much to put my focus on and so much brain energy that I put on things. I don't want to waste that on trying to create and curate a wardrobe that I have to manage. And oh, when was the last time I wore this? Uh, he has it. Nope. And it's like, I don't care. This is my Tuesday outfit. I'm wearing this on Tuesday. So I, I love that. I love that. Created a uniform for work. And did you just keep it at work that way? Yeah. And it wasn't just through that job. It was through every job I had until I stopped working as an engineer. Um, mm. I, I had the same shirts in the same rotation every single day, summer, or winter, um, Phoenix summer or Chicago winter is the right. same shirts every time. Did anybody ever notice? Uh, yeah, I pretty uh, pretty quickly, most people after a few weeks noticed like, do you wear that shirt all the time? And people would give me, after a while, people would just give me like some good natured ribbing about it. Okay. Just, you know, like, ah, oh, here they are, Thursday shirt. It yeah. must be Thursday. <laughs> um, okay. And, and you know, in, in retrospect, looking back on it, I think there was um, a lot. I like to think of it as me just being efficient and just outsourcing um, having to make decisions about clothes. Yeah. Uh, maybe because I envisioned myself as Mark Zuckerberg or something mm -hmm. uh, with my gray Lululemon tees. Yeah. Um, he, has, he has a uniform. He does. You, yeah. you know exactly what he's going to wear. Steve yeah. Jobs, same difference. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think, I, in retrospect, I think a big part of that was me just not caring enough about myself to mm -hmm. want to like present myself in any certain way other than just the bare minimum effort. Mm -hmm. That was all that I had cared to present myself. Gotcha. Um, nowadays, I don't think I would I would do that. Um, but at the time, that's I think underlying how I had justified it to myself. I think there was just that just the uh, lack of care. Hmm. Yeah. So uh, several of the jobs I've had over the last X number of years, uh, I've had a variation of a uniform top. So the way that I have. Um, employed something like that is i'll have my monday to friday bottoms right so every monday i wear these you know and in the summertime i have very specific in the wintertime i have like so in the summertime it'll be all shorts in the winter it'll be all pants right and i had like five to seven different shorts that i would wear and then you know four to five different pants that i would wear every so i i, I dig it i dig it 
I, I, I get that. I, I, I think different. I think it was a little different for me when I was doing food service for many years. It was just black dicky pants for mm -hmm. years and years and years. And those are the only things I ever wore for pants. And then once I moved on to office work, it became khakis or gray khakis. Uh, and nice. that just became you know, one week. It would be my gray khakis with my polos. And the next week it would be the khaki khakis with my polos and then just repeat and rewash and so on. And so nice. forth. I dig that. I dig that. Okay. Wow. Um, I think this feels good. I think this feels good. This is a good place. I think I have an idea of where I want to take your story. I think. Or at least, I, I, I think at least I know where I'm going to start your story. Yeah. Um, yeah, this, is, this, will be, this will be fun. Uh, I will ask, um, around what neighborhood did you live in in Phoenix? Sure. Okay, so this is where it gets interesting. So the neighborhood that I lived in was called Maryvale. Um, it was a, it's still in the city of Phoenix, but it's... It, I, it was an early version of, I don't, of a suburb, essentially. It was one of the early mm. suburbs built in, like, in the late 50s. Okay. Um, in fact, uh, on a whole urban geography uh, trivia level, uh, Maryvale, to my understanding, was the first master planned, master planned, was the first planned suburb to include spaces for churches as part of its master plan. Interesting. Uh, so that, uh, and that was how the neighborhood uh, of, got started in and so you can imagine um through the 60s it was very just suburban white whatever yeah. uh by the late 80s um it had completely reversed direction and became like the hood it was mm. the hood uh of phoenix and when i was growing up that was exactly the case um you know there was you know depending on the year and depending on what school i went to there weren't there were colors i wasn't allowed to wear Obviously, I wasn't allowed to like walk anywhere because it was too dangerous. You know, lots right, of open air yeah. drug deals in the apartments across the street. Mm -hmm. um, Maryvale was also uh, famously where Sandra Day O'Connor practiced law before, um, long before she became a Supreme Court justice. No kidding. Um, and by the time that I had left, and by the time about yeah, by about 2014, it had really lost its reputation as a bad neighborhood. Okay. But it was definitely still a very poor neighborhood okay and i and, and i feel like a lot of, there's a lot of times there isn't a distinction made between bad and poor but there is a very strong distinction and that is Maryville. that is a, a very on the nose assessment of um the way that we as americans by and large look at communities not separating the idea of a bad community from a poor community and often that is associated with you know the ethnic background of those living in those communities so certainly um and i and i and i taken pride even through some of the bad times that when i was in college i took a class uh it was a, it was some sort of, it was an urban planning class and we were talking about gateway communities so uh, famously, Chinatown in San Francisco is a gateway community for people from China to, you know, become to learn, understand American culture in a community where there's where they can, you know, get a chance to learn it without being completely immersed in it. And my teacher uh, talked about Maryvale being that same way for Mexican immigrants uh, coming through Phoenix is that Maryvale was uh, a gateway community for Mexican immigrants to become to like get familiar with American culture and then to move on. So there was a lot of people always just moving through where we were at. Gotcha. Okay. 
pretty transient community. Yeah, fairly transient. Um, still lots of uh, mom and pop shops. Uh, it was, even though it was um, lots of Mexican immigrants, especially by the time that I left, it was getting a lot more diverse. I noticed a lot of Indian immigrants taking place. There was some really, really great um, Vietnamese uh, food in the area. Uh, so I knew Vietnamese weren't far behind. There was a small African diaspora, I guess, just a little bit to the northeast of us. And so it, the, the, the neighborhood was starting to turn right about when I left, but it was still um, very much a majority Mexican neighborhood and majority very working class, very just struggling to get by. Mm -hmm. Lots of, yeah. Okay. Perfect. In some ways, I felt like, uh, considering, especially considering my family, I felt like I was living in uh, a reshoot of Gran Torino at times. Really? Okay. Yeah, it, it definitely the way that the way that my family was and uh, the way that it fit into the greater community. I, I, I it was very much the same kind of feeling. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Alrighty, that helps. That helps. Just in case I uh, Google Maps and decide to take you on a walk. Um, Wonderful. Yeah. Perfect. I think this is a really good place uh, to 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 pause. For a brief moment. All right, so at this point of the show, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. We'll listen to a little bit of music, and when we come back, I will read the story that I will have written for Vanessa. It'll be called Other Vanessa, and then uh, we'll talk about it. Stick around.
Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that little musical interlude. Uh, again, my guest for today is Vanessa Rollins. Um, if you'd like to follow her on uh, social media, her Twitter is at number two marks, number four marks. That is number two, M-A-R-K-S, number four, M-A-R-K-S. And there's no number in there. It's just the, the number two, two marks, four marks, but they're numbers. Um, also, her uh, she has attached to that a GoFundMe to help her fund her bottom surgery to as as part of the adventure of her transition um uh what's what's um what is the gofundme uh it should be something very similar to help vanessa rollins with bottom surgery very straightforward word cool beans so if you want to search gofundme for that or you could just hit the link in her twitter bio uh that's where it is two marks four marks vanessa are you ready for your story i think so let's do it awesome okay so this is other vanessa we're going with other v that is the name of the character that I had built for her. <sighs> Other V stares into the mirror, sizing up the stoic image standing before her. Pants? Check. Today's polo? In hand. Other V ponders quietly, whispering, okay, but what if I wear a tie? A pounding heart rings in Other V's ears, echoing loudly in her mind. Her wardrobe could be printed and laminated, and she would not be bothered. She took solace in the structure. Everything has its place. Every day has its clothing. Today was Tuesday, which meant the teal polo. This week, other V wore charcoal khakis meant to look a mixture of denim and slacks. They were comfortable, stretchy, dancer's pants with a forgiving waistline. These, however, did not flare out at the ankle. They held firmly to her legs, showcasing the contours of a former fat kid's chiseled calves. But what if I wore a tie? Does that change things? Does that change me? I mean... What's that song I'm always singing? Let's make the most of the night. Like we're going to die young. Might as well. No. What are you crazy? Teal polo. The end. Other V flings the tie onto the bed and continues getting ready for, ready for the day. Every day starts the same. She leaves her window cracked so the cool air of the dead of night sneaks into her bedroom, kissing her cheeks and chilling the tip of her nose as she sleeps. This same crack allows just enough sunlight into her room as the sun climbs the horizon before resting in the sky above. The single ray of light wrestles the tree line and snakes between the leaves and branches before poking through the barely open window and prying other V's sleepy eyes open. She lifts her head, swears loudly, and glances at the pending alarm clock, which reads 6.52 a.m. The alarm clock has a buzz or a ring or whir, but other V has never heard it. Every night she goes to bed and sets her alarm at 7 a.m., but every morning the sun climbs through the window before resting firmly on other V's eyes, resting her from sleep. Armed with the closet's offering for the day, Other V heads off to work. The pounding in her chest remains. She begins to sweat heavily, filling the seam of the teal polo's collar with perspiration. The tan skin covering her knuckles becomes pale white as she firmly grips the steering wheel. She pulls her Jetta over to the side of the road and leans her seat as far back as it will let her lean. She stares at the roof of the car for a moment and begins calculating in her mind's eye the size from left to right, inch by inch, of the width of the car's roof inside. She holds her hand open and places it on the roof above her. Okay. From my thumb to my pinky is 8.5 inches, roughly. There are approximately five hand lengths going from window to window, maybe more. I imagine that puts the width at around 44 to 47 inches. Her breathing calms. Her heart settles. What was that? Confused, but almost late for work. Other V sits up, regains her composure, and drives the rest of the way to work. Hours pass and days later. So, 
Where do you see yourself in five years? Asks Benjamin Hartman. A slender man in his 30s. His well-worn gray suit with mismatched buttons from when he outgrew it several years ago and popped a button sitting down to receive a promotion hangs on his frame like a blanket wrapped around a child watching cartoons on a chilly Saturday morning. Embarrassed and motivated, he tamed his body and lost enough weight to wear it comfortably and lost, then lost a few more pounds. Instinctively and without pause, other V blurts, as your boss or somewhere above that. Shocked, the interviewer stammers through, uh, come again? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say it out loud like that. Um, I've just been planning a corporate climb ever since I was a kid. You know, I almost wore a tie today. I think that was my subconscious preparing me for this conversation, preparing me for the next rung up the ladder. Here, let me ask you something. Five years ago, where did you see yourself? Here? I want to outshoot your dreams and make some real moves here. Other V asserts, fashioning finger guns, she pew-pews above the interviewer's head and blows invisible smoke away from her fingertips. Taken aback, the interviewer responds, well, uh, good luck. Your reviews have been stellar, I will say that, but the rungs are small and people don't like to share. A forced smile comes across his face. He drops his chin and looks over his glasses into Other V's eyes. Not to be outdone, Other V calmly responds, I suppose I will have to climb up and over those between where I am and where I want to be. I have a patent pending, did you hear? I imagine, I imagine that will raise my stock, and although I want to grow here, I do. I will grow where the soil is most fertile. Other V flips her hair off her shoulder, stands and extends a hand. This has been a real treat. I look forward to reading your assessment of my review. The two shake hands and Other V click clacks her heels as she confidently walks from the conference room and heads to her desk. Pouring over schematics, Other V finishes her work for the day and maps her route to her partner's place. The most efficient route takes her by, her, by their favorite Thai restaurant. Thai is for Wednesdays, but... As she began to walk in confidence as she rode the high of her interaction with Benjamin Hartman, she ponders a deviation. Tuesdays are for tacos. Everyone knows that. Other V and her partner knew that, but today called for a celebration. Arriving at her partner's apartment, Other V stands at the door and stares into the receiving end of a peephole. Tied takeout in her right hand and a couple tacos for good measure in her left, the smells of dinner dancing around her. She waits patiently at the door, silent and still. The warm evening air drapes over Other V. Droplets of sweat race down her forehead and pool on her eyebrows. A statue at the front door. She does not even move to clear the sweat. As if in a waking dream, she's unable to move or speak, crying out for her partner in her mind, but nothing is on her tongue. Opening and closing her lips, not even a whistle escapes. She patiently stands at the door, counting the ticks ringing out from her watch. She stands in frozen silence for three hours. She hears the latch of the deadbolt shift. The door opens. Other V, where have you been? I've been texting you. Are you just getting here? Asks her startup partner, Gertie. Other V shakes her head, her springy curls bouncing from left to right. After hours of trying, sound finally makes its way out of her mouth. No. What time is it? I got here at six. I stopped by for tacos, as it is Taco Tuesday. But I had a really good review and wanted to celebrate with Thai food. I know that's Wednesday's meal, but we can have it twice in a row, right? Frustrated and confused, Gertie responds harshly, You got here at six? It's after nine. You mean to tell me you've been out here in front of this door for three hours? I don't believe you. Why would I lie about that? What a stupid thing to lie about. Look, I don't, I don't know what happened. I got here and I froze. I, I, I couldn't move. Other recalls other V. Look, you're not, you're not getting cold feet, are you? We talked about leaving Phoenix, but now you're frozen. The excitement of her success in the interview room slowly draining, she mutters, Can I come in, please? I'm hungry and tired and I don't even know if my fingers still work. 
Without a word, Gertie shifts her weight and opens a path for Other V to enter. The two walk to the kitchen table. Other V places the bags of food on the table and stares at her cramped mitts. Stuck in their tight grip, both hands are reluctant to release the cold food. Gertie comes over and massages Other V's hands until they soften their grip. She drops the bags on the table. I'm not getting cold feet. I know we've talked about moving away from Phoenix, but I had a really good day at work and a stellar interview, and I think I might want to work my way up here. Maybe we could talk about it again in a few years, but I think I could really make some moves. The excitement in her voice raises word by word, continuing. What if we got a place together in Roro or Arcadia? We could get like a gorgeous condo or like a ranch style home. I really think I, could, I would do some pretty amazing things here. Do you trust me? Gertie stands in silent pause. Taking in a breath, she responds. The end. That's it. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I had to, I was pausing to just breathe out. I wanted to like hang on to every word. Oh, oh. Yeah. good, good. Oh, it's I. You know, uh, you said row row, and it took me a second to realize you were talking about Roosevelt Row. Uh, yeah. I, I had it. I haven't heard that name in a long time, and just ah, uh, I that was such that was such an interesting story. It's I love. Um, I, I love how you were able to pick up, and I don't even believe I, I brought it up, but my workplace at the time was a very casual workplace. So even with me and my bosses, we were very casual with each other. So it it isn't so out of the question for either other V or me V to like finger gun my boss and say, I'm taking your job. That... <laughs> That seems like it could have happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. I love the attention to detail, the holding on to the bag until you can't let go of it. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, that was a, that was a fun little ride. Right on. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you. We didn't really talk about you and like what the interactions would have been with your ex. Uh, so I had to guess. And I I know for me it's like I want to avoid the tendency of always to make everything like angry fighting. I mean, cause there's, there's no reason for that to always be the case, <laughs> but I imagine if, if it did happen that you were just standing there, you know, and she's expecting you, um, like what, what do you think her reaction would have been? Um, to me being three hours late. Yeah. Uh, of just standing in front of the door when she opens it. I do. I would have expected her to text and called. Okay. Uh, so you got that part right. Um, and to realize that I had been standing there for three hours, I think she would have been both a little upset that I just zonked out and just let the food get cold. Mm. And at the same time, it wouldn't have been surprising either. Um, okay. Her reaction for um, her reaction of her reaction to me being completely nonplussed by whatever she was upset by mm-hmm. um, couldn't have been more spot on. Uh, that could have been very much a defining trait between us is that um, I was very stone faced when the occasion did not call for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I like that, that that still got in there somehow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Awesome. Right on. Right on. Uh, one thing that I do I'm, and I'm super proud of, uh, I remember when we were in 
we were, I don't remember what level it was. We were in one of the levels and you had, uh, you were wearing shorts that day. And I remember, uh, we were talking about your calves and you're like, Oh, I grew up as a, uh, as I was a, a chubby kid. And in my brain, I'm like, I know exactly what that is. I can't tell you how many times I was at the gym working out and these like meatheads would come up to me like, yo, what do you do for your calves? And I was like, survive being fat as a child. <laughs> That's pretty much it. That's pretty much it. So I like how you tied that in there. I remember, I remember the exact day. It was in level two. Okay. Um, we had just left class. We were, uh, you might have said it first um, as we were walking down the stairs and somebody else echoed it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I remember exactly that, that moment you were talking about. Yeah. And I, and I, and I don't, and I didn't recall uh, mentioning anything about that when you mentioned it in the story. Um, I was like, that's an interesting detail to bring in. How did, and then as soon as you just said it just now, I yeah. recalled, yeah, you did bring that up before. You had yeah. noticed that. Yeah, I remember like so many times. I remember there was there was one time I was, um, shoot, where were we? I don't know. I, I remember I was standing at a window and I was tiptoeing because I'm short and I wanted to look. And so I was tiptoeing and this dude who's like this big beefy guy comes over and just like smacks me in the calf. And he's like, bro, good job. Good. The work you're doing, man. I'm so proud of you. I was like, ah, it's just walking, but thank you so much. <laughs> so. Some of us have to use, have to, had to have used a lot of extra effort to push mm. off on our feet when we're walking. Yeah. So uh, all that extra effort gets turned into chunky calves for us. Nice. You're welcome. Yeah. Right? <laughs> oh man. So the, um, I parlayed your structure. Did you guys have like dinner, like regularly set dinner plans? I know you, you had mentioned that you guys like to, uh, one of the, one of your hobbies was going out to eat and, you know, doing fun, fun things around the area. Did you guys have like, okay, so it's Fridays and on Fridays we do X or anything like that? I don't know if it was ever said officially, but there were lots of things that we just did out of habit. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say it was boneless Thursdays at B-Dub Dubs. I know we mentioned nice. B-Dub Dubs before. Right. Um, but Taco Tuesdays, there was a chain. I don't know if it's if it's out here or if it's just a West Coast chain. I want to mm-hmm. call it, say it's Rubio's Tacos. Oh, Rubio's. Yeah. Rubio's. And on Taco Tuesday, they had uh, fish tacos done uh, Baja style. Nice. Um, and that was for a good while. That was going to be, that was one of our, uh, one of our things to do was go out for Taco Tuesday and get like a couple of fish tacos. Nice. Um, and, uh, of course that came into play here. Yeah, of course right. it did. Um, <laughs> most yeah. of the time though, I don't know if we had, we went out to eat a lot and it wasn't so mm-hmm. much, it was a scheduled event. It was, it was, it was, it was, it was a scheduled event in that it was a day of the week. Therefore, of course, we went out to go, right, go yeah. out to eat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. And and I want to say during my, from like 27 to like 30, anytime I was hanging out with people, it was like, hey, let's go get some meat. Right. And that was like five or six times a week. I was having dinner out just with people. So I totally get that. And it's like, oh, it's a day that ends in Y. Time to go out and get some meat, you know. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's, and of course there's, you know, uh, get a couple of drinks to go along with it just mm-hmm. because, you know, you're, you're young, you, you had some money flowing around, you're mm-hmm. in your twenties, might as well have a good time. Everything looks like it's going, everything appears it's going to be like that, but just getting incrementally um, better and more mature and more adult right, yeah. um, every day goes by. And so you get into that rhythm mm-hmm. that 
this is just what life is going to look like. And so it doesn't, on one hand, I don't, I wouldn't have thought to make a habit out of it mm -hmm. or, or rather make a scheduled habit out of it because it just became a habit. Right. And when that habit broke, uh, wow, that, you know, then life started looking a lot different. Yeah. So did you end up when that, when that habit broke of going out to eat, um, was that when, after you guys split or was it, um, after you had already moved here and now you're, everything is different. So not going I, out to eat as much. We, we still ate out a lot when we moved here. Um, okay. partially because it was, you know, the city of Chicago is new to both of us. So we had to find, um, new places to eat. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, uh, a creature of habit. So for me, it was important to find places that I could just go to and order the same thing over and over and over yeah. again, where okay. maybe it's for her, it was more important. Um, to just experience new different things and try different things. Um, and that was something we definitely did mm -hmm. um, keep up with. I don't, and I guess after we broke up, I just haven't gone out to eat nearly as much. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And so, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. I'm into it. Oh, uh, speaking of, you and I went to uh, that Indian slash Pakistani place. I never remember the name of it. Was it, um, I think I know what you're talking about. Was it very affordable? Okay. It sure was. Uh, Garib Nawaz. Yes, Garib. I actually went there for lunch today. Oh, nice. Garib Nawaz. And I remember, because yes. like you were, you were like, okay, we're going to go here. I love it. And they just serve you these trays of rice <laughs> and then like put stuff also on there. Um, and they, yeah, they just have so many options. There's just so many people there in like 19 different lines. It's great. It's great. It really is. There's, uh, I, I love going up to Devon um, and getting something to eat. And, I, and especially Garib Nawaz, A, because I'm cheap and mm -hmm. they have cheap food. Yeah. Um, and the food is really good for the price. You get a lot of it. Oh, yeah. And, I, and one thing that I've really come to love about Chicago uh, that's probably endemic to a lot of major American cities, but really mm -hmm. so much, really big thing of Chicago, um, it's just the diversity. And mm -hmm. it's not so much that, oh, I can go get Indian food because I could go get Indian food in Phoenix. Mm. Um, but it was, I was going to an Indian neighborhood mm. to get Indian food and have, and the neighborhood just kind of fit in that. And that was something, um, you know, growing up in uh, a heavily Hispanic neighborhood, um, there wasn't a, a bit, there wasn't a lot of uh, diversity around. I wouldn't have been able to experience so many different cultures mm. in the way that I could by moving here mm -hmm. and by really taking advantage of how good the cuisine is. I think you could learn a lot by a cult about cultures through um, their language, mm -hmm. uh, which is obviously important because different cultures emphasize different things in their culture based on language. And mm -hmm. just because English can make up words for everything or steal right. words for everything if we need to, um, it doesn't mean it's as essential to our culture as it is to the cultures that we took it from. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you can learn a lot about the culture through their cuisine. Yeah. Um, and it's been an absolute pleasure and joy to learn uh, about different people and about different ways of life uh, just through eating mm -hmm. their way of life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I've, I've th there was a period um, in the early 2010s where I fell madly in love with all of those travel shows where the whole purpose is to go somewhere interesting and then try local cuisine I love it. I love it because I, I think I experience 
life in the world through food for sure. It's one of the, it's one of those things that, you know, and this is like part of it is growing up in, in like an evangelical church. The way that people interacted was like, Hey, let's not talk. Let's just eat. Right. And so the way that I, uh, let that impress on me is food is a good way to bridge gaps. Right. So you share a meal, you have a chat, you know, and the thing that I love is when I go somewhere, it's really exciting for me to eat food that's local to the area because that tells me a little bit about the area. One thing about that, though, that I find to be absolutely hilarious, every country in the world thinks that donuts are a local treat. They're donuts everywhere. So when I was in Morocco, there would be signs up like, hey, try this local treat. I'm like, oh, yes, I want that. And they were donuts. I'm like, these are donuts. They're like, no, it's it's local. They put them on a necklace. And okay, okay I guess that's interesting. In Spain, same thing. Hey, here's some very uh, amazing local treats. And I'm just watching this dude literally just make donuts for hours. And they like make a show of it, which is cool. I will say that. It's cool. I was in Croatia. Same thing. Posted up signs like local Croatian treat. Try it. And I was in Split. And they were little, they were just donuts. And I was like, bro, why does everyone think that donuts are a local treat? Everyone and their mother makes donuts. Everyone. Now, that's not to say I did not eat them everywhere I went. <laughs> that is also true. But th- that is something that I find to be hilarious. Like, oh, try this that, local delicacy. That, that's a donut, man. A donut. It's almost, it's almost as if dough... Uh, fat and sugar go really well together, yes. and everyone seems to have figured out like the correct combination yeah. into which to like maximize it. I, yeah. I, I, I forget who said it, but some maybe it was maybe it was Doctor Strange over. They said uh, donuts are a communist plot to destroy American military readiness. Um, was that we just eat so many donuts, we just get so fat and lazy? Yeah, um, sounds about right. I, and I, and you know, you bring something up about like traveling and eating and cultures and. Not to get so um, down about the pandemic, but I think one thing that because food and especially diet culture um, really makes us think less about enjoying our food and more about like how to use our food as a tool to create a body that we think Mm -hmm. will allow us to live the values in our lives that we want. Right. and because there's been so much social isolation over this year, past year, mm-hmm. I think uh, not just society, but so many, so many people, so many people have lost track of food being a social experience. It is, a, it's a, it's a bonding experience. It's a way, mm-hmm. you know, food for primitive humans wasn't 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 just a way to like get your macros right right it was a way to like build community you know the the hunters went out and the gatherers went out and they came back and they and they shared with everybody and you and you ate and it was a thing we all did together and with all this isolation i can't help but wonder if people's already uh damaged relationship with food just based on how we're taught and raised has only been more broken Mm -hmm. by isolation and so instead of turning to the company of others to really add to the foods like emotional quality and just like 
make it something special. People have been turning to food to make their emotional quality of life. And maybe if you're lucky with others, something special. And it right. just seems to be like a, a, an inversion of priorities. Yeah. I'm with you on that a hundred percent. The, the, we my wife and I have had so many conversations about diet culture, the damage that it does and it, how, <clears throat> excuse me, how diet culture never really addresses people's relationship with food. Right. And the fact that we overeat and I, I think like the fact that we overeat is a byproduct of the fact that we overproduce food, right? Because even though we, we overeat as a country, we still like discard 40% of the food that we produce. So if we just didn't even produce that extra 40%, we would still be overeating like crazy because we do, right? And so we never really address that. Right. And so dieting is like, oh, I have to deny myself all of these things. Right. And then I have to change my mindset because I have to treat a donut as a I'm cheating on my diet. I'm like, oh, it's a cheat meal. Let me have a donut. Or it is I am, you know, I'm being bad. You know, I'm, I'm going to be bad and have some of this chocolate. I'm being bad. And that's, you know, just, just this broken mindset about what food is and its role in our life. And 100%, I agree that it takes, that has taken away from all of the relationship building that food could have in our lives. Because it's a great way. It's like, hey, everybody has to eat. So let's eat together and we'll share some time together. But with diet culture, it's like, well, not everybody does eat. Some people are on fasting regimens. Some people stop eating at 5 p.m., right? Some people like, oh, well, it's dinner and I'm only allowed, you know, a third of a chicken breast and three pieces of broccoli, you know? So it's, you, you lose out on all of that. And especially, I think, I think food has a language, you know? There's a language to the way that you prepare it. And there's this message and this emotional connection, especially when people care about what they're making, you feel that like just the energy that you pour into it as you're making it, it just, it tastes different than when it's just factory chemically, you know, just produced like boom, boom, boom by machines. They're just, there's something missing, you know, even if all the steps are the exact same, just the energy poured in is, is different. So when mom makes it with love, you can taste the difference. Yeah. And, and, and there was something that you said um, and to your overall point, there was something that you said, and perhaps just in passing, but it really, really speaks um, to the real darkness behind diet culture is that you said, if I eat a donut or if I eat a piece of chocolate cake, mm -hmm. I'm bad for doing that. Yes. It's, it's a shame tactic. Mm -hmm. It's not saying that I'm a fundamentally good person and I ate something that our society considers bad. And so maybe I should feel, maybe I can feel guilty about it, mm -hmm. but at my core, I'm a good person. Right. But really we've internalized it to say that I uh, think I don't need to be eating this chocolate cake, but I did. Mm -hmm. So I am a bad person for doing right. it. And shame is such a great motivator. Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, it is such a great motivator that it's become so baked into just something as simple as the food that we need to eat and that our body asks us to give to it mm -hmm. that we just can't even, we can't even eat without shame. Yeah. Uh, it's so pervasive in our culture. Yeah, I agree. The idea of uh, a mom cooked meal. So I, my, my parents live in Florida 
And so uh, there are a couple like older ladies that I know that I grew up knowing through like through church and just through family and stuff. So uh, in the time that I have been separated from my parents in this way, uh, I will reg- I have on occasion called them up and was like, Hey, um, can I come over for a mom cooked meal? I could really go for a mom cooked meal. Right. And they're always like, Oh my God, sweetie. Yes. Yes. Please come. Let me feed you. Ooh, you know, sort of thing. Uh, and I, I just, and I, I think par- part of it is yes. Psychological. I just, I'm having a meal with somebody that I revere as like an elder, uh, that fills that role, uh, relationally, but also again, the energy that she is putting into making this meal. I'm, I'm also benefiting from that. Right. So mom cooked meals. They're amazing. It's, it's such a hard thing to quantify. Like there's nothing specifically different say about Popeye's versus your mom's food. Mm-hmm. It's still food. It's still made of the same base ingredients, mm-hmm. but there is something different about it. And that's, yeah. and that's a hard thing to like really drill down into aside yeah. from I made it with love. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something magical about it that I, that I, I can't get away from. I dig it. I dig it. Oh man. This, it has been a weird time in life. Now, now the adventure, if things open back up soon, the adventure of, you know, readjusting to the way that life is different now, because there's no such thing as going back to normal. Normal has set sail, right? And it's gone. It's, it's Frodo on that boat. He's gone. Goodbye, Frodo. Right. And so now we're going to have to figure out what normal looks like in the future and just adjust, you know? which I'm, I'm excited about that. Right. I'm, I'm excited to explore what normal is going to look like. Um, because man, so much has changed in the way that we look at things. So much has changed. Like Twitter employees don't never have to go back to an office. My wife was just telling me recently that there are several, like multiple Sears Tower. Yes, I'm calling it Sears Tower for all of you. They're going to argue with me. I'll fight you. Multiple Sears Towers worth of office space in downtown Chicago. That's empty. Five right now at this moment. There you go. Five. Look at that. Yeah. And I in the summertime, I don't think all five of those, that, that's, it's not going to fill up just randomly. It's just not. I mean. No, it's, it's going to take years. Yeah. But even that, I don't think it'll ever go back to what it was. Especially because, so there has been, to a certain measure, um, uh, productivity that it still exists, whether people are in the office or, or not, right? So all of the micromanaging that people felt that they had to do, they realized, okay, I don't have to do that. I can still have productive employees. But at the same time, there is a measure of fallout that happens after prolonged isolation, in the workplace. There's a, there is a certain measure of social interaction that people need in the workplace. So it, we cannot function permanently through this isolation. So are they going to just lease an office space once a month for people to come in for a week and then three weeks at home and then one weekend, three weeks out? I mean, how, how is that going to look? Or are they going to multi-lease floors to like 50 buildings right and then they just have to work out they'll schedule like okay these 10 businesses get the first week these next 10 get the second next 10 and so on and so forth and so they're just again they'll just be like blank cafeteria style workspaces that you know 
you take everything home when you're done at the end of the week. But it's like, what is that going to look like going forward and how, so that I'm, I'm excited for that adventure just because of all the ways that we have had to figure out how to innovate. Wow. Yeah, I, I think there is just a, a huge amount of unknowns just going forward in so many different fields mm-hmm. um, beyond just commercial real estate. I mean, speaking personally, I don't know what my next move in life is going to be because I don't know what the world is going to look like in a year, in five years. I don't know where I'm going to be in five years because I don't know what the new normal is going to be. We don't we don't seem to have set in stone or even a concept sketched out in our country of what the world is going to look like. We just seem so dead set mm. on just going on just like putting our blinders on, pretending nothing ever happened and just going back to the way things were. Right. Um, maybe just out of, out of a habit of comfort or, or what, but mm. it's so hard to like, make a decision on what, what the future is going to hold and to yeah. just really go with that because who, who knows, you know, yeah. I don't, I don't want to be an office manager right now. Do I, right. do I take out a lease on a new office space? Should I get a small space? Do we need a, just like a little we work space? Yeah. Do I want to make my people give them the option to stay home? Should I make them come in once or twice a week? Should I just make everybody come back? You know, to your point, there is a social thing that's missing. Mm-hmm. We, we, people talk about like their work families, my work wife, my work yes. husband. Um, and that's that's just a whole class of social interaction that's just disappeared yeah. for a lot of people over this past year. Mm-hmm. And it's a huge, huge social interaction. You're, you're with these people 40, 50, 60, sometimes more hours a week. Yep. And, you're, and so for these people to just temporarily disappear from your life is tragic mm-hmm. enough. But yeah. for that entire social experience that whole social realm to just be completely just wiped out of your life in perpetuity that's that's problematic in and of itself i I think i I hope that sustainability isn't just a buzzword Mm -hmm. um for how we're going to look at infrastructure and energy over the next decade i hope that sustainability is a way that so many of us just tend, look and approach uh, our ways of life. Is staying home and working great sometimes? Sure. Oh yeah. But is it sustainable? Maybe not. Maybe yeah. we do need those social interactions at work. Mm-hmm. I know as a Lyft driver, I miss just going in to work and like commiserating with someone over coffee in the morning. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's a question: Is it sustainable? Is it sustainable to force everybody to go back to work? Uh, and like put huge commutes back into people's lives and all mm-hmm. this uh, and all like the pollution that comes along with it and all the time and the stress. Is that the sustainable option? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But is but I think and I hope that is the pathway that we start to make some decisions. Uh, yeah. Is is this sustainable or not? Yeah, that's there, there, the, the logistics of, of all of that is interesting like trying to weigh pros and cons, but they're like hypothetical pros and cons, you know, because even though we have years and years and years of life as it was, who's keeping track? How, how are we quantifying that as data, you know, and then comparing that to what it is now, comparing that to what it could be and projecting for the future. Like, okay, if we maintain this, how is that going to be impacted? Especially because I mean, the there's so much that 
doesn't need an office space to get done. Right. And so there's that, I feel like there's that mindset, like from just a cost analysis, dropping the, the office space has to be like a measure of a priority because for the most part, how often, like, have you ever heard the phrase, the needs of the business, right? Especially used uh, like to weaponize the, I'm going to screw you over right quick uh, and justify it with this phrase, the needs of the business, you know? if that really is the motivation for most places, it's like, okay, how do you justify then cutting into that to bring this social interacting back? I don't know. I, I feel like that's what one of the ways that I think it's going to be impacted is there'll be way more like work retreats, right? So you're going to be working remotely five days a week. And then one weekend a month, we're going to bring you in and we're going to have you there for like a, Friday, your workday will start at technically 3 p.m. You'll go through the workday and then we'll party all night and we'll have like team building stuff on Saturday and then everybody goes home, right? For Sunday, you're back to work the next Monday or whatever, you know? And I, I think that's going to be, I think that will be a solution because those those things exist and a lot of the, the remote um, looking at jobs uh, that are, you know, naturally remote, a lot of like, freelance stuff that I have, uh, I've been looking at to, 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 to do as, as work, you know, um, during this time, uh, a lot of them mention how they prioritize, like having, how they did before the whole pandemic, how they prioritize having these work retreats once a year. So I'm thinking like, okay, places that normally had buildings might employ that, you know, going forward to just be a part, regular part of it and see how that impacts things, you know, because then you'll get the social interaction with people that don't normally get to see each other. But that also means that we'll miss out on our work wifeys and our work hubbies and our work spouses and stuff. Yeah. And, you know, if that's the case is how does that market look for resorts now? You know, they've been having a rough time, I suppose, with people not wanting to travel. And maybe now they're, overrun by business customers that instead of coming out once a year, they're coming out once a month or once a quarter. Yeah. You know, that's, that's a couple times over just all these extra new people coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and are we going to have to expand that to make up for the difference? I don't know. Yep. Yep. So all of that is exciting to see how things are set to, to turn out, which is pretty darn cool. Right. And I, and I hope, I hope that's the case. I know there's lots in current events, I know there's lots of talk about um, trying to find. Well, I'm in my in my mind, it's trying to find an equitable way to distribute vaccines. But mm-hmm. the issue is, you know, how do you protect patent properties and intellectual properties as far as this vaccine goes? People mm-hmm. around the world need to get the vaccine, but our culture prioritizes um, putting intellectual property, or corporate intellectual property, mm-hmm. um, at its forefront. And so, you know, there, if, we're, if, our, if we're looking at, you know, how do we do things going forward where we're prioritizing uh, people mm-hmm. over making money, right now, uh, we're, we're not, as much as we like to think that might be the case, in practice, that's still not happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the people and the companies and the systems that decide that it's important to make money are still doing that, no matter how we feel about it those things are continuing unabated so i i i wonder if over time that will change and if this pandemic was the impetus for it 
even if it's not happening right away, there were still so many people that have been so deeply impacted by it that just over time, the change will just be inevitable. And there's nothing that they'll be able to do about it. Maybe that'll take five years. Maybe it'll take 10 years. Maybe it'll take 100 years. I don't know. But one can only hope. Yeah. I got you. I got you. It's going to be fun and terrifying, which makes it all the more exciting. (laughs) Both can be true, fun and terrifying. Yeah. Like a log flume. Right. (laughs) So was there anything else in the story that stuck out at you that we haven't touched? Uh, I was trying, I don't believe I owned any teal polos. I'm trying to remember what my Tuesday polo was. And I believe it was, um, a striped blue polo. Okay. (laughs) Other than that, um, it very, I, it is interesting, um, to perceive what my life could have been like had I taken a much more pro-corporate ladder approach Mm -hmm. to my career. And rather than giving myself the space to explore something different, Mm -hmm. I dialed down and doubled down onto what I knew and what I thought was correct. Mm -hmm. Um, Or rather what other V knew and thought was correct Mm -hmm. was to just keep pushing for what I was told was right. And I think that it's interesting that even when I did that, and even rather when even when other V did that, Mm -hmm. and other V was uh, direct with her boss, Mm -hmm. that the emptiness that was me still came out in a moment of celebration that I would go to my partner's place wanting to celebrate a great day with food in hand. And I was so empty and I was still so deeply searching for meaning in life Mm -hmm. that the time just disappeared and three hours went by. I didn't move. Nothing changed. And it's not because I wasn't moving. It's because I was on a treadmill that nobody told me that I was on. Mm. And no matter how much I pushed it, you know, if I had a far I ran, I wasn't going anywhere Mm. and I wasn't finding what I was looking for. Mm. Wow. I'm glad that you were able to resonate. Very much so. I was, that was getting nervous. Fun. That was great. I was getting nervous writing stories. I've done it like what, I'm fifty, almost fifty times now, and I still, I still get nervous every single time I write it. I'm like, it's a vulnerable position to be in. You've yeah. created something, and now you're sharing it, and you, you know, that's that is a vulnerable position. Yeah. When I first started this, uh, I had imagined presenting the story to my guest and letting them read it. Um, but I was like, could you imagine somebody reading it? And they're like, Oh, what the fuck? I hate this. You know, <laughs> as they're reading it, you just kind of hear it in their voice. I'm like, Ooh, maybe I won't, maybe I'll just read them all. 
so. Yeah, somebody they they get all the emphasis wrong yeah. and like, oh, no, no, no. Just, oh. or like they'll miss just, a punchline if I write a joke in there, you know. Mm-hmm. So I always appreciate when writers read their own audiobooks for the same reason. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I just imagine like the the, the work and this is it's something that I have considered doing. I, I feel like if I if I could better soundproof the space that I'm in, I would definitely like record books. Um, but it's, it's, it's one of those things where like the entire novel becomes a script and the way that you tear apart a script and you try and understand the motivation, the inflections, the conversation, the relationships, you know, it would just like your notes, note taking everything. Right. So I'm reading 300 pages of, of a script, you know, that's the one thing that gives me pause on that because I, I know I would have to go in there and dive into everything and make no, notes about literally everything. And like, I would almost to the point where I would have to reprint it on eight and a half by 11 sheets so that I can write stuff in margins and make notes for myself. So, but yeah, be, because of that, but I mean, if, since I wrote it, I don't need to do that. Either. I know, I know, you know what I felt. I know what I want to say. So, I, I, when I was when I was into doing VO, I liked the idea of just approaching a book cold and just reading it and trying to give inflection to the characters as I got them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you lose so much. Like, how do I know how this? How do I know where this character's desires and feelings are going to be, and how do I get them to that point if I if I don't know where it's going to end up? Yeah. Um, and so, despite all the time savings, I just it just wouldn't. You really do have to take it apart. And just start and stop and yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> it's a big endeavor. Yeah, yeah, cool. So, all that being said, I'm I'm glad that the story I wrote was meaningful. I feel like this is this is a good moment to wind things together, wrap it up neatly with a bow. Um, how do you feel about the show today? Feeling good? I think this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think this was great. Uh, I I loved the story. Um, I, I loved where it spun out for us and to just like investigate little things about, uh, culture, whether it be sustainable commercial real estate or diet culture. I love that we, we were able to touch base on those little things just spun out from the story. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Yeah. I had a good time. I thought this was a, a, a good conversation, a really good conversation. And I'm glad you liked the story. So with that, we'll go ahead and we'll bring other V to a close today. Again, my guest, uh, it's Vanessa Rollins. Please follow her on the Twitter, two marks, four marks. Her GoFundMe is there. If you feel so inclined, uh, please enjoy reaching out and donating to her uh, fund to um, pay for her bottom surgery. Super glad to have you on, Vanessa. Thank you again for being here. Really appreciate it. I am D for Vanessa. We out. Please come back next week for another episode of Other You. Follow us on, well, follow me. I'm, I'm Other You. Follow me on Twitter at Other You Podcast. See you next time. Bye.